You see, all of life, ladies and gentlemen, is a story. There are about seven great narratives that really define the whole of human condition. In fact, writers try to write a story, search in vain, trying to come up with new elaborate plots because there's, there seem to be locked into some kind of a storied structure in which there are only so many variations you can come up with. And uh, one uh, Cambridge scholar has brought that down to really essentially seven plot lines. And all the great stories of life, romances, love and death, revenge, they're all found in there, all the great movies, all the philosophical systems, and so forth. But the story that we're looking for is a question of life. The Bible opens up, in the beginning, God. But it's not just any God. It's not just some generic idea of a God of your fancy, your feelings, or whatever. The Bible goes on to talk about a very specific vision of God who is transcendent, who is the creator, who initiates and begins by his word and by his spirit. And then there's a story told about a man and a woman and about a space-time fall. And then it goes on to talk about the call of a man called Abraham, the calling of a people. And you get this big journey then into the forming of the people of God in a story of worship and redemption as this people stand out about, among the nations to worship Jehovah God. But they, they drift across history and they are also the recipients of a great promise that one day one will come, a Messiah, who will deliver and heal the creation, that the, the, the disruption in space-time, the disruption in the human condition, the problem at the heart of humanity will be healed. And then there's the inklings of a story that a Messiah is coming. And then we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes and this man and the people, Jews are wondering, who is he? He does miracles, he teaches, he, he seems to be an unusual figure. And then he dies on a Roman cross, executed, and then he's raised from the dead. And the whole of history is reframed in that moment. And then people saying that God became flesh, that the great Alpha and the Omega, the one that made all things, has come amongst. How could that be possible? To the Greeks, that is absurd. That just doesn't seem to make rational sense. And yet this claim that in this man, Jesus, was the God-man, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and he, he died a death, rose from the dead, and is bringing humanity back to God so that the whole of creation can be healed. Wow, that is quite a story, really. You see, we grew up in America where we're told that we are the result of slime plus time plus chance. You come from nothing, you are nothing, you go to nothing. Life is a project. I am to make up my life. I am, I am to suck the marrow of existence. I'm a rational man or woman in control of my destiny. I am to go out there and build a life through education and business and order and maybe make a lot of money and get a retirement and marry a good woman or not, or have multiple partners or do what I want. Define myself, it's up to me. Self-expression is the dream of life and when you die, you die or maybe transhumanism will come on, I'll be a cyborg in another world or I'll be uploaded into, after cryogenic sleep into something else. You see, these are all stories and the Christian story is either true or it's false. It's either about reality or it's about nothing. If it's only make-believe, why would we believe it? So here is the apostle in the book of Romans, and he's talking to the church. He's writing to Roman, and Romans gives us a complete overview of the Christian message. It's a book worth reading over and over again. And writing to the Roman Christians at that time, in what was then the center of the world, in Romans 10, 14 through 17, Paul says, How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Good question. How will they preach unless they are sent? 
Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I remember uh, my early days, I would grew up, my mom had been raised in a Christian home, had saw my dad as a ticket to freedom, had left, uh, and our home was a non-Christian home. I left home when I was 15 years of age. I was an angry young man, went out on my own, and I did pretty well. I learned that I could fight, I could work in a dance hall, I was a bouncer, I could make money, and money was everything, wasn't it? If you've got money, you've got power. Who cares about morality? There is no morality. God is a social construction or an idea or a projection. Why bother with any of that? Then this woman that I had been living with becomes a Christian. I didn't know what a Christian. She said she'd been converted. I thought, well, what does that mean? She became a three-room and kitchen. I mean, what does that, you know, converted to what? But something had happened, and she really did testify about this God. And then these Christians wanted to meet me because she told the story of this young man who worked with these thugs in Glasgow, the Sopranos of Glasgow. And that, you know, I was really far away and didn't know God. So they were praying. They invite me over. And I went over there, and I was pretty much set that I was going to beat them up or something. And I get ambushed by this guy. I remember coming into this house, absolutely convinced, not a thought in my mind about God. I mean, who thinks about God? And that it was the 20th century. I know it's the 21st now. It was 20th then. Um, I'm that old. But I remember coming to, who believes in God today? I mean, Jesus has passed his sell-by day. I mean, what's church all about? Isn't that for people who drink tea and coffee and sit around singing songs or doing songs? I don't know what they do, but it isn't relevant to real life. And then they shared about God, about creation, about the fall, about sin, about forgiveness. And I'm throwing out all the arguments that I thought were clever. And bit by bit, my defenses fell. I came into the house pretty sure there was no God. Over time, began to get a kind of a creeping feeling in the back of my neck. Oops, there might be a God. And if there is, I'm in serious trouble. And then they preached and told me that even although I had hurt people and done ugly things, even though I had pretty much broken all the Ten Commandments, that Christ would take someone like me. And he did. And it was real. But here I was now, plunged into a world where I was telling people, my Sopranos-type buddies, well, you, no, you don't understand, God is, he is really, really there. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I mean, they are mocking and, you know, making me look like an idiot. And I had no answers. I had Bible verses, I had experience, I had, but I had no knowledge, I had nothing. So I was driven to the scriptures time and time again to try and discover who this God was. And over the years, I now believe I have many answers to those questions. But right from the beginning, I was sent out on mission. Friedrich Nietzsche said these words, he who has no why has no how. And I ask you, that applies to all of life. If you don't have a why big enough to get up in the morning, a why to live for, a why that guides you in all of your experience, and a why in your Christianity, this whole idea of missions and sharing means nothing because there's no why in your life. You might believe it sort of mildly. You may believe that Jesus is a savior. You may be able to fill in forms on Reformed theology or Pentecostal theology or whatever theology you believe. You may be able to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but it doesn't move you. Because he who has no why has no how. Is the why big enough? My first mission trip, I went out into the communist countries. I joined a team that were uh, bringing literature and materials into Eastern Europe, and I got arrested, and I got put in jail. And I remember getting arrested and, and put in jail, and I thought, that's really cute, God. All the time I'm on the other team, we stay out of jail, we manage to talk to lawyers and never get arrested. I join your side, and I end up in jail. What's wrong with this? 
And I remember thinking, are they really putting me in jail because of Christ? And the answer was they were. I didn't understand why Christianity was a threat to the communist system. I didn't understand why deeply belief in God made a difference. Why it makes a difference today in China. Why it makes a, day, a difference in other parts of the world. Why Christ is a threat. Because Christ is either the Lord or he's not. If he is, he is the ruler of all. And although he's the savior and the loving one, he's a threat to all those who he challenges. But I was challenged to go. I remember this beautiful words by Brother Andrew, a Dutch uh, brother that wrote a book many years ago and got smuggled. He said, there are no close country in the world, only close people. He said, Jesus said to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say anything about coming back. You see, brothers and sisters, you and I live in a, in a culture raised in comfort and convenience where being unfriended is the greatest crime of your life. Where you're absolutely terrified that someone might like, not like you, or they might think you're an intellectual idiot, or you're an academic who believes in Jesus, but you wouldn't say anything because it threatens tenure or it threatens your job, or you're in a business where, oh, I might be ostracized if they knew I believed in Christ. That's the kind of fears that we're living for. Well, brothers and sisters in the Middle East and other parts of the world are putting their life on the line and being threatened with death, even as we gather here today. I just heard about this last week by friends of mine in Nigeria, who in this last two years alone have seen 6,000 people killed, including many of their congregants, in the last few weeks. It's serious business, this Jesus stuff, but here's the question. Is it real? Is it true? Because if it's not real and it's not true, why in the world would we stake our lives upon it? Winky Pratney, a missionary from New Zealand, once said, God is looking for willing hearts. God has no favorites. You do not have to be special, but you do have to be available. But the question to all of us individually is, what is your treasure? What do you really want? You see, if I don't have a why big enough to live my life, to help my ethical choices, to guide me in marriage, in relationships, in business, in life, and right up through death, if my why is not big enough, then I'll live chasing all kinds of other dreams and never finding the true answer of life itself. And so why does Paul give us the gospel? Well, he starts with God's gracious provision. If you look back in Romans chapter 1, you get the introduction to what this message is all about. And this is where the heart lies. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The word power there is the word dunamis, from which we in English use the word dynamite. It's a word of power. It's a word not just of ideas. The word of God the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not just a set of concepts. It has concepts. It's not just information. It has information. It is God moving in life to change life, to do something in us, to us, by his grace that changes us and initiates us into a new life. Michael Green, a veteran evangelist and colleague of ours in Oxford, said this, Christ that Jesus did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how I can get this across. If you only hear one thing, hear this one thing. That's what Christianity is about. Jesus is in the life business. He comes to bring life. There are three words for life in the Greek text. You have the word bios, which talks about your physical or your bodily life. The word suki, which talks about your soulish, if you like, your cultural life as well. 
But there's a third word that was introduced through the New Testament that is only in the Scriptures, and it's the word zoe, life in the Spirit. And that life can only come from God. So if I want true life to be born again, I must have this new life. And it's this God who is the life giver, the life bringer, the life healer, the restorer that sends us on mission. And that's why the most important thing that you can say is what you mean by the word God. A.W. Tozer, famous Christian preacher, said, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And what I hear people pushing back on Christianity as we travel the world or we're in campuses or we're talking to businessmen or students, often the anger and the aggression is against the caricature of God. They have heard these horrible pictures painted and there's nothing lovable or attractive or worshipful. And this is a God who is angry and basically hovering over them, controlling every detail, micromanaging their sex lives or whatever. And they think that's what God is all about. They don't understand that God loves them, created them, knows them, wants to gift them, and will transform them by his power so that the ultimate life that they were made for can be theirs. What you mean when you say God is the most important thing about you. In the scriptures, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And notice for everyone who believes, it's not by works, it's not by efforts, it's not by inheritance, it's not by my sincerity. It's believing and trusting that the grace of God is for me. And it says from faith to faith. So faith doesn't mean that I blindly believe in the face of evidence. There are some people that think, and there are some churches that do this with Christians that get the idea that faith is believing and making something real that isn't Believing in the faith of evidence. So some, some people seem to get the idea that to be a Christian, you are transformed by the removal of your mind. Really, I got that impression sometimes. I was told what to read and not to read, and I began to think that thinking was a problem. But Jesus said to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need Christians who think deeply from Scripture. We need Christians who can think about philosophy and psychology and economics and law and can wrestle with Scripture and Bible, who will design companies and businesses and architecture, who can do all kinds of creative things because their imagination has been set on fire by the grace of God, guided by the Word of God, but able to make a difference for the glory of God. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Brothers and sisters, stop calling people out of the culture into the church. Send them into the world, into the university, into the television studios, into the businesses. Let them make a difference for Christ and realize that that's real mission as well. But they need minds, they need training, they need education. What does it mean to, to have faith? It means to trust. I love in, the, in the, uh, the Reformers said, some people think that Richard Dawkins likes to parry this idea as if you believe in the face of evidence. I don't believe in the face of evidence. If Richard Dawkins had walked down a few doors down in Oxford, which he had plenty of opportunity, he could have talked to our colleagues, uh, Alistair McGrath, he has talked to them, or uh, Rich, uh, uh, John Lennox, who he doesn't particularly like. He's a scientist with three earned PhDs. He gives him reasons to believe. He doesn't believe in blind faith. He believes in trusting on the basis of evidence. Noticia, there are facts and evidence to believe. A census, there is intellectual assent. Fiducia, that we cast ourselves in trust upon that which is worth trusting. 
I don't trust people I don't, that aren't trustworthy. I trust God because he's good. I trust God because of the res resurrection. And faith is a beginning of a journey, not the end. It starts me on a walk where I walk with him into a way of life. All mission is rooted in who God is. As John Piper once said, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. What do you really want this morning? As you come in here this morning, I know you've got all kinds of expectations. What do you really want? Because as we go in Romans, we see the characteristics of those who are going to serve God. And one of that is a compassionate heart and a prayerful vision. Listen to these words of the apostle. Speaking of his own people in chapter 9, 1 through 3, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me that in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Do you hear the pathos? He's looking out at his fellow Jewish people and the agony that he feels, the anguish that they don't really know God, that they've had the promises, the covenant, and they're not worshiping. And he is willing to give up his own salvation if they can be saved. In Romans chapter 10, 1 through 3, you see how this translates. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer for God for them is for their salvation. I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but not in according with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, how do you feel about your fellow Americans or Canadians or from guests from overseas, your people from China or Asia or Germany or Russia or wherever you're from, the Middle East? Do you feel that level of compassion? Do you care? Are you moved? If not, why not? There's something weird. There's something strange about this. But this kind of Christianity is the kind of Christianity that makes a difference. And without this, we're struggling. Because here in America, we're all angry. We're angry with everybody. Everybody's screaming and yelling on their Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Who's the baddest of them all? Who's the most wickest of them all? Social media has been weaponized. And we get day-to-day -day poison. And we look out on each other as enemies rather than looking out at people lost in the image of God needing the gospel. Do we shed tears for them? Do we care? Do we pray? Mission doesn't mean just going overseas, brothers and sisters. It means going to the other university department or across the street to the person right next to us. Bill Sullivan said, the evangelization of the world waits not on the readiness of God, but on the obedience of Christians. Love is the root of missions. Sacrifice is the fruit of missions. So what do we see in the apostle? Well, first of all, a deep understanding of the stake involved. He is willing to identify. He's willing to stand up. He's willing to enter into their pain. He's willing to let them know that he cares. He will listen. He will go. He will be amongst them. He will ask questions. And he's touched at a very, very deep level. He speaks of his heart's desire and his conscience, the implications of truth that are driving him to make some changes. That means he wrestles very deeply with this message. But once again, brothers and sisters, is it true? It's easy to have Christianity as a hobby, isn't it? To have religion as a part-time thing, a casual Christian where I come in and I do my Jesus bit on Sunday and I do the business bit on Monday or university bit, whatever it is. 
We're compartmentalized. Christ calls us to a whole way of life, to follow him, to surrender. If you're going to be an academic, be an academic to the glory of God. A businessman, a businesswoman, a researcher, an artist, a mother, a doctor, whatever it is, build something, do something, be a soldier. To the glory of God, do it with all of your heart. But don't play. Don't be a part-time Christian. You see, in Paul, you see the, the deep momentum in his life. In chapter 10, verse 1, it moved him to prayer, seeking prayer. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Everything begins in prayer. Every revival, every movement. I don't know the mystery of prayer. I can't figure it out. And I don't need to figure it out. I just need to do it. You know, we are involved in missions all around the world. Our team this week will be in Ottawa, a university up there. They're in the University of Georgia. They're also in one of the major universities in Peru. People are speaking. There are people from the gay society, the atheist society, other religions. There are hostile academics. And we try to go onto the campus and say that Jesus is not just a religious pill to solve some problems or an escape mechanism. He is the Lord of all life and creation. And everything to do with that has meaning for all of existence. So what we believe about economics, what we believe about psychology, what we believe about sexuality is rooted in our entire view of reality. And yes, we have to give answers for it. And by the way, you have to give answers for what you believe as well. It's not just a question of deconstructing Christianity. Our opponents also have to answer the questions of origins, meaning morality and destiny. Where does everything come from? What is the nature of existence? Are their answers better than our answers? If their answers are better than ours, then be a Marxist or be a Muslim or be a Hindu and don't be a Christian because they're not equal. At some place, truth divides. Is Christianity true? That's a big question. Not just true for you, true ultimately, objectively, for all men and women everywhere. Arthur Pearson said, if missions language is because the whole life of godliness is feeble, the command to go everywhere and preach to everybody is not obeyed until the will is lost by self-surrender in the will of God. Living, praying, giving, and going will be found together. And once again, we're back at the question, why? I can't answer this for you. The pastor can't answer this for you. You have to do your own homework, and you need to draw a circle around you and say, is my why big enough to live by? Am I living today that I trust Christ fully, that I follow him? Not that I'm a fanatic or some kind of nut, but that I'm serious, I'm dedicated. This is important stuff. If it's not true, then of course it's not important, it doesn't matter. But the importance of their message is seen very clearly, isn't it? Listen to these great words from John Stott, one of Britain's greatest preachers of the last century. He said, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. In Romans 10, and God will disturb us. He does disturb us, doesn't he? The C.S. Lewis said he's the great iconoclast. Romans 10, 8 through 10. Here talking of the gospel, it says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. This is, this is the heart of the gospel, a very simple confession. But there's, there's, there's real content in there. There's substance to believe. 
When I was in Hong Kong once, we were invited to speak to a group of high-powered business people. We're up at the top of one of these. In fact, you've seen it in the Batman film where he goes flying off, one of these big buildings. So we're up there. I didn't see the Batman, but we did see the people that were there, the Dark Knight. But anyway, as we're up there, you know, you get a short 50, it's 30 minutes. These are corporate lawyers. They're busy people. And I mean, they're wearing these magnificent suits, you know, thousands of dollars, ties that are worth hundreds, shoes, clean to the max, teeth polished. And I mean, they've already been on their iPad all morning since they got up. You know, they're doing businesses and deals. And they come to a Christian thing. So they weren't terribly necessarily thrilled, but they came. And uh, they sit there. We give a presentation. And as soon as we're done, a few minutes, this one businessman, lovely looking, sharp guy, um, I think Malaysian background and said okay I'm, I'm a Buddhist background he said all this Christian stuff is interesting he says but religions are all essentially the same what's your unique proposition what makes Christ unique my friend John Dixon from Australia was with me he's a New Testament professor at Macquarie and just like this off the top of his head he just says history wounds and grace that was it now the word I know I swear Scottish accent I didn't get the middle bit wounds you know wounds when you've been wounded wounded just in case you didn't catch my strange accent. History wounds and grace. That Christ had came into real space-time history to redeem us. So we're talking about a real faith, that God is the creator and he moves in real. So history and faith are important, Christian. All of history matters to us. We don't take history lightly. God works in space-time. Wounds. We worship a God who suffers. He is the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, acquainted with grief. A God who suffers with us to carry our pains and sorrows. And grace, the God who brings us what we do not deserve and cannot earn. He gives us unmerited favor. And in a few phrases, a few seconds, John had surmised the heart of what Christianity was all about. And we went on to have some interesting discussions. That's the heart of the gospel. God who works in history and redeems it, a God who is wounded, who comes to bear our sorrows and our sins, and a God who forgives us. John Stott, why is it that some Christians cross land and sea, continents and cultures as missionaries? What on earth impels them? It's not in order to commend a civilization, an institution, or an ideology, but rather a person, Jesus Christ, whom they believe to be unique. He says, his authority on earth allows us to dare to go to all of the nations. His authority in heaven gives us our only hope of success. And his presence with us leaves us no other choice. Lo, I am with you till the end of time. Brothers and sisters, he is here and he is not silent. Aslan is on the move. What are the implications? Well, Romans 10, 11 through 13 tells us. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Once again, I turn to, to start. He said, the Bible isn't about people trying to discover God, but about God reaching out to find us. I remember a number of years ago being at an event, and this young man came to me, Middle Eastern looking, actually Pakistani background, dark, tall, really ruggedly good looking, and he just was full of passion and wanted to know more about RZIM, wanted to be a part of our ministry, told me, began to tell me his story. His name was Nabil Qureshi, young man that came from a Muslim background, Ahmadi, and he had found this, this, this experience that transformed his life. And Nabil was one of the most amazing young guys I've ever met. I mean, talk about serious. I mean, good grief. I mean, he had already, 
He'd just graduated as a medical doctor and put all that aside because he'd come to Christ now he wanted to go out and witness. So he wanted to go and study theology so he could get background, study the New Testament. So he does a master's degree in apologetics. He does a master's on the New Testament. And shortly before he died, and he died of cancer, he was working on a PhD in the New Testament. And all this in a number of few, few short years. But he, what, what was great about Nabil's journey was he was passionate about his faith. He loved to tear Christians apart. He loved to take them on. And then he, he had been so used to demolishing Christians. He goes to university. He ends up in a room with a guy called David Wood. And God had placed this unusual guy right in that room together. And these two guys went at it. David Wood had come from a very, very uh, dark background, come to Christ, had an amazing conversion, and he's, Nabil's first thing is seeing David on his knees praying and reading his Bible. And he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm reading my Bible. He goes, I'll take that out of your hands. We'll demolish that in no time. And David says, bring it. <laughs> and he did for seven years. Seven years, the two of them, they go back and forth. I mean, they got arguments. They liked each other. They almost got into physical fights. They get so mad. David would give them uh, questions from, from Greek and Hebrew, and uh, uh, Nabil would run off to his imam and come back with texts from the Quran, and they would go back, and, and he would put questions to the Quran and to the Bible. They'd go back and forth. And finally, they were at an impasse. Nabil had come intellectually to the place like it looked like Christianity was true. Intellectually. But he said, I can't, I mean, I've been, I'm, I'm dedicated to my faith all my life and my family. This will be a disaster. I cannot see it. Even though the facts say that it looks like true, I can't do this. So he begins to pray. He begins in desperation, crying out and asking God for a dream. God gives him a dream. And typical to Nabil, hmm, can you give me another one? Now, I don't know why God does this with some people. He doesn't do it with others. But Nabil got a second dream. And if you read his book, Seeking Allah, finding Jesus, you'll find the story of how a young man goes on to meet his maker and became a flashing light for Christ for a few short years, and he's taken home. And you say, well, why did I? I don't know. I do know that he was converted. I do know that he was serious. I do know that he wrote great books. I do know that he witnessed passionately, and I do know that he's home with his king, and he's not weeping tears now. But God takes someone like him and uses him. What about you? What are these questions? Four questions and one praise in 14 through 17. How will they call upon him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So there is information and knowledge to be shared. People need to know. We need to take the responsibility of communicating, not just giving the four spiritual laws, finding their questions. You see, the reason why some of us never sh share is, A, because we're afraid, secondly, because we've never taken the time to study, and thirdly, because we don't ask questions of people. Don't fire answers to them on questions they are not asking. Take time to find the questions they are asking. If we answer the questions they are asking, that helps us to move towards the ones they're not asking over time. But if we don't take seriously their deepest doubts, their fears, their anxiety, their anger, and their hostility, then we can't get anywhere, particularly in this world today. Now, that's uncomfortable for some of us. It means we have to reframe church. We need to do Sunday school class a bit differently. We need to wrestle with tip. We have to bring up our own doubts. By the way, in churches, there are a lot of unbelieving believers. And they would, you know, because the pastor will say something, and people will nod with enthusiasm. But when he's not looking, I'm not really sure that's true. Do you think that's true? I don't know. But we don't, we're not allowed to ask questions in some places, and so we don't. And the doubt goes deep. 
Doubt is a halfway house between faith and unbelief. If you address doubt, it will lead to faith. If you leave it unaddressed, it goes to unbelief. There's nothing wrong with questions. We just need the courage to address them. And that takes work. The apostle commands those to obey and go. And he talks about, commends them rather. He says, how beautiful are their feet. I love that picture. In our area around us, we have lots of these nail salons and people love to go for feet manicures, you know. And I commend these people have these businesses that like to work with people's feet and beautify them. But the Bible says, how lovely are the feet of those who preach the gospel. He wants people who will go. So what does that mean? It's an issue of calling. Calling is a central issue of the Christian life. You're called not to a vocation necessarily, although it includes that, but you're called to him. My colleague, Oz Guinness, and we can roll forward to this in the PowerPoint, please. Calling in the Bible is a central and dynamic theme that becomes a metaphor for the life of faith itself. You see, when I met God, it wasn't that I was called to things. Yes, I was called to mission in that sense, but I was called to mission because I was called to worship Christ. Wherever I am, if I am serving Him, is mission. For some of you, that's the university. For some of you, that's business. For some of you, that's the home. We are all called to do our part. So what is calling? Osgood says, calling is the truth that God calls us to Himself so decisively that everything that we are, everything we do, everything we have, is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and his service. What difference would it make if you were in business tomorrow or you're studying that paper, you're trying to deal with trigonometry, you're trying to deal with information technology or some kind of issue, and you understand that you are called and everything you do is an act of worship and service and dedication. Your life, your energy, your talents are given to him. Calling covers all of life. Have you given it serious thought or prayer? You see, this Christian stuff means a lifelong commitment. One of the great presidents of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, said, commitment is what transforms a promise into reality. I'm a lot older now. In my early 20s, I went out passionate on a mission. It's a bit harder to go on a plane. I'm in my early 60s. But I look at Ravi doing over 200 days on the road a year preaching, universities all around the world. I look at Oz Guinness, late 70s. Oz has just brought out his book, Last Call for Liberty. I look at John Lennox, my colleague, traveling the world, debating in Australia, talking to the new atheists, speaking on science, on television. These men are going at it full gusto. They're not looking for retirement. They're not running off to Cancun. They're not just wanting to spend their life withdrawing. They are giving themselves because they believe deeply, because they have a why that gives them a how. And that takes commitment. And commitment takes us through to the end. Andy Andrews says, when confronted with a challenge, the committed heart will search for a solution. The undecided heart searches for an escape. You know what I'm talking about. We've all got friends. We've got people being around the church. Well, you know, I'm just kind of agnostic. This defense sitter who's been agnostic all his life, and he's been staying agnostic because the no commitment commitment is an easy man's escape. Well, I just don't have enough evidence. Well, what would be enough evidence? When would you decide? When would you know? You see, you don't know half the time because you won't get off the fence, because you're not willing to put your heart in it, because you're not willing to put blood in the game. You're not taking a stake, and God calls you to get off the fence, young man, young woman, or older man, young woman. Stop pretending. Stop playing. Get serious about this stuff. 
If it's true, it's true, and it's very important. You may not be able to go, but you can give. You may not be able to help in some way, but you can pray. You can do something. Give your heart to Christ fully. Look at how the apostle, as he ends the book of Romans, coming to the end of this, and he knows he was ending, coming to the end of his life. You see his passion. Look at what he says in Romans 15, 20 and 21. Thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. This defines someone who all of their life is committed and serious to take Christ into the cracks in the concrete, into the spaces in, in, in culture, into the internet, into places where Christ has not been named or has been blasphemed, and to testify. To go where Christ is unknown, and there's plenty of space available today. To be motivated and concerned for the uninformed and the unexposed. And thirdly, to make it his ambition to preach the gospel. Again, these beautiful words of John Stott. The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. It's not an invitation for us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. You see, I'm in the reconciliation business. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm not selling something. I'm not beating people up. I'm not coercing. I can offer Christ to them. I can give reasons. And if they don't believe it, they walk away. What do I do? That's not my problem. I, get, I commit them into God's hands. But I want to make the offer. I want to give them the chance. I want to share. I want to be involved. So, brothers and sisters, I began with the question, how shall they hear? That's what the mission conference is about, isn't it? Your church is very good at this. In the book of Isaiah, there is God, a voice is speaking, and it's clearly God calling out. And the, the, the prophet hears these words, who will go for us in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah responds, here am I, send him. That's what we often do at missions conferences. We have people saying, well, that young Jenny, she's a very clever woman. That young John, he's a very serious person. God should send them out in mission. Or my cousin, Fred, he's good. Or she's always been very serious about Christ. They should go. So here am I, send them, right? Why don't you draw a circle around yourself today? You want revival? Draw a circle around it and ask God to revive everything within the circle. And maybe then we can say, here am I send me. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful church dedicated to mission with so many people giving, going, and helping in so many extraordinary ways. Father, America and much of the world is in trouble, and there are real issues. And we need not only new missionaries, we need a new kind of missionary. We need people working in all the institutions who are serious, focused, loving, kind, and able to share the truth. Will you bless this church? Will you bless this congregation? Will you empower us to make a difference here in Kalamazoo and beyond in Michigan and to the world? For those foreign students who go back to their home countries, that they will go back with passion and joy and be a blessing to the nations that you have sent them from. Lord, we honor you. This music we heard today was really super stirring and I, I hope you are pleased. I can imagine your smile as you heard those wonderful words. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive the reward of his sufferings. 
And so, Lord, we pray today as we close this service, may thy will be done. May thy kingdom come here on earth as in heaven. For Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.